Welcome to the October 2011 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations in Boston. I'm Melissa Neller. And I'm David Cameron. This month, we'll journey to Siberia, where DNA from a finger bone found in a cave is shedding light on the dawn of humanity. But first, here in Boston, Harvard Medical School researchers are launching a new initiative with an eye toward the future. It's called Systems Pharmacology. And it's a comprehensive strategy that will draw on the vast range of biomedical expertise available at the medical school and its affiliated teaching hospitals to transform how drugs are discovered. Many may not be aware that biotech and the pharmaceutical industry are in crisis as fewer and fewer new and innovative drugs are developed. Modern drug discovery has focused on predicting outcomes based on the interaction between a candidate drug and its immediate cellular target, but this approach often fails because it ignores the broader biological context. It's like trying to predict what will happen to an ecosystem if a species goes extinct without knowing how the plants and animals in the environment interact with each other. With systems pharmacology, a signature component of Harvard Medical School's Translational Science and Therapeutics program, researchers will embrace complexity. Multidisciplinary teams will build sophisticated models of biological systems and study drug candidates in context. I had a chance to chat about this approach with Mark Kirshner, who's head of the Harvard Medical School Department of Systems Biology. I began by asking him to describe the problem. It's as if we have a map of the highway system in in the United States. We have detailed maps of small pieces of that system that maybe extend for a few miles around points. But we don't know the connectivity of that system large scale. And if we were then to use these kind of detailed but fragmentary maps to plan a road trip across the country, we would fail. Is it accurate to then say that over the last few decades, most, if not all, of pharmacological research has been based on kind of fragmentary understandings of biological systems. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that. It comes back every time we try out a, a drug, early in trials or late in trials, and we find one of two uh, outcomes so often. One is that it doesn't work. And the other, of course, is that we have unexpected toxicity from the drug. Okay, okay. So, uh, so it's really that kind of lack of coherent picture which stymies our appreciation of when things will be effective and also stymies our appreciation of when things will, in fact, have toxicities that were un- unpredicted. So we've spoken a lot about the need for academia to be working with industry as well. Why is that important that such collaborations exist in order to do this? I think systems pharmacology represents the most obvious place where academia and industry should work together. There are areas where the drug companies do a very, very good job and where academia can add something but very little. I mean, I would say, for example, in actual drug development and actual small molecule synthesis in assay development. These are things that the industry has invested huge amounts of money and very talented people in. That's really Uh, their thing. That's really their thing. 
But in the area of, of aggregating biological information, the area of making models, in the area of quantitative measurements and predictive sort of descriptions, uh, this is an area that requires even academia to look outside of its usual disciplinary boundaries to incorporate mathematics, computer science, physics, chemistry, biology, genetics of uh, populations. None of these areas that I spoke of are well represented in industry, so it's really only academia who, that can build this field. Well, I've noticed even in your department you have traditional biologists and then you have people whose training is just pure, like mathematics, right, right. and like this merging of disciplines. Yeah, our department, which is the Department of Systems Biology, is really built on that principle. And what's different about this department and, uh, and a few other departments like it around the world uh, is not that you have physicists and mathematicians and biologists next to each other. I mean, that's fairly unique, but not uh, so completely unique. It's really the co-investment of people in the same kinds of problems. We're talking about problems which are quintessentially problems that physicists and mathematicians have thought about and biologists have not thought about. That is how mm. to describe the large-scale behavior of complex systems. Okay. You mentioned a couple times studying failure mm-hmm. of drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously something we hear a lot of in the aviation world and so forth. Right. But not too much in the pharmaceutical world? No, the study of failure, even the study of success, is not widely practiced in the pharmaceutical industry. I should distinguish two things. I mean, I think the pharmaceutical industry recognized the kind of failure that arises from off-target effects. That is, you make a drug targeting a specific molecule. You uh, administer this drug, and you have some other effect, and you find out that that effect is due to the fact that this drug actually binds to some very different molecule. The drug company will then, when they understand that, will go back and design a better molecule with more specificity. The more difficult problem is so-called on-target effects. That is, you target a specific molecule. It only hits that molecule, and it still has effects that you don't predict. And it's the reason you don't understand that is because as complex as biological systems are, as maybe 25,000 genes, let's say, These genes are being used over and over again in different contexts. Unless you understand the larger sense of the context in which these genes are used, you can have the best designed drug in the world with the highest degree of specificity for that target and not be able to predict what its effects will be on the system. Which would sort of bring us back to the notion of the map, I guess you're saying. That's right, the understanding of the map. And I think the understanding of the map is not just, you know, kind of a cautionary tale here. But it's also a a map of opportunities. That is, once you understand the dynamics of the larger system, you might predict combinations of drugs or specific drugs that you wouldn't have thought of before that would be quite effective in these systems. Our next story begins in a cave in southern Siberia. The entrance overlooks a picturesque valley amid the Altai Mountains. Inside is a dark, protected chamber where ancient humans lived for tens of thousands of years. This cave serves as a treasure trove of ancient history. It's also proving a boon to geneticists who explore our ancestry. Harvard Medical School professor of genetics David Reich has been analyzing DNA extracted from a finger bone that archaeologists discovered in the cave in 2008. The bone is at least 30,000 years old, and its DNA has revealed that the Siberian cave dwellers were neither Neanderthals nor modern humans. Scientists call the newly discovered group of ancient humans Denisovans, 
and their DNA continues to surprise. Working as part of an international team, including researchers from Max Planck Institute, Reich found that the Denisovans have left their mark on the modern world. It turns out that they contributed DNA to present-day Melanesians, Aboriginal Australians, Polynesians, and others. This isn't shocking, considering that all present-day Europeans and Asians contain some Neanderthal DNA. But it does shed light on the movement and intermixing of populations. That's because Denisovan DNA is entirely absent from the present-day populations of the East Asian mainland. The implication is that there were at least two waves of human migration across the continent. The first wave gave rise to the aboriginal populations that currently live on islands off Southeast Asia. The second wave gave rise to the East Asians who are now the primary population of Southeast Asia. The genetic patterns uncovered by Reich and his colleagues provide a window into the dawn of humanity. They were published in September in the American Journal of Human Genetics. Thanks for listening to the October episode. We'll leave you with a prescient quote by Albert Einstein. Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Words of wisdom for anyone with an appreciation for the complexity inherent in systems. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications and External Relations, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit hms.harvard.edu.